Let's pray. God, as we open your word, as we come together as a local body, we come with varying circumstances. We come in with a range of emotions, Lord, from deep joys to grief and sorrow. Lord, we, we, we because of your common grace, experience joy in this life. Moments of joy, glimpses of joy. But Lord, I know that we all carry in sorrow, mourning, grieving. I pray that this morning, as we look into your word, that you would show us that we, we grieve. We grieve in this world, we grieve in this life, but we do not grieve as those without hope. I pray that you'd show us this morning, God, how this hope informs the way we live, how it changes things for us now and how we can cling to it with certainty in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if you can believe it because I have a hard time believing it, but here we are at the tail end of Revelation, right? Like, it always, it always catches up on me real quick, really quickly. It catches me off guard, you know? Because you put, put hours and hours of study into this prior to even opening the first chapter for preaching. You know, years, years before uh, we decided to preach this at Gospel Life, I've been reading Revelation through a lens of like, man, I really want to preach this someday, and that required a lot of reading and study, and you know, how would I handle certain texts and structure certain things. Then when, as an elder board, we, we get together and we determine now is, this is a good season, a right season for us to turn our attention to Revelation. Then I have these months of in-depth study leading up to the first time you open it, and when you do that, there's like, there's this idea that we're going to be in this forever, and probably because of Genesis, probably coming off of Genesis made me feel that way, but... But, you know, you, you get into it, and now all of a sudden, here we are. This is the last apocalyptic vision of the text in Revelation. We're, we're post-millennium at this point. Not post-millennial, but post-millennium uh, at this point. And so I would like uh, to, to pause here and say, all right, with two chapters left this morning, and then we'll, we'll get to the last chapter in a couple of weeks. It's, it's important to remind ourselves and to ask the question, why is studying the book of Revelation important for the Christian? Like, why do we do this? We talked about it at the front end. We talked about it for, throughout, but there are a few reasons that we could highlight here. One is for Christians to have a better grasp of what the Bible has to say about the end, the eschaton, the last things, in order to have this expectation of Jesus' literal, physical, bodily return that as our EFCA statement of faith says, motivates us toward godly living and energetic mission. We really believe that. We believe, you know, along with others, that your circumstances actually aren't what make you feel the way you feel, that the most formative thing about you is what you believe about your future in a lot of ways, right? Um, we're going to get into a little bit more of that today. But, but on the other hand, we want to have a grasp of how the Bible describes this and how it doesn't describe it. It, it does describe, in other words, a physical bodily return of Christ, but that description isn't so that we'll have, you know, a heightened awareness of the events of this world all around us in what I would call, you know, a, a theology of speculation toward the end times. But rather, we're intended to have a heightened awareness of the coming kingdom, 
A heightened awareness of our future hope. A heightened awareness of what is to come for as long as we have breath in this world to declare him to the world around us. That's the mission of our church. That's why we plan to the church. All right, so these past few weeks are a perfect example of where I think we get this uh, wrong. All right, okay, so here are, here are some recent headlines from the past seven days. Washington Post, Russia's war on Ukraine has some Christians wondering, is this the end of the world? ABC News, Russia-Ukraine war, some pastors wonder about end of days. Rolling Stone, Christians think the Ukraine invasion means Jesus is returning to earth. The Jerusalem Post has biblical Gog and Magog war begun. Now my goal here isn't to, it's not to diminish those who might be inclined to agree with this, but to simply offer a rejoinder saying, I think that there are several problems with viewing the eschaton in those terms, the end of days in, that, in those terms. And we don't have time for all of them this morning. I'll just, I'll let my exposition of Revelation stand as my answer. You can go back and listen if you haven't. Um, really had the chance, but this morning I'll just say this about it. I think it's easy in every age to put our focus, our primary focus as we read Revelation, as we read what the scriptures, how the scriptures inform us about the end, we put our primary focus in the wrong place, right? We run the risk of giving, of, of reading this with a this world focus in our eschatology rather than a new creation focus. And I don't think there's any doubt that as you read Revelation, John is moving us forward to new creation. That's what the whole theme is, right? So there's this new creation focus that we need to have. What do I mean by this? An illustration might help. It's a question I've asked you before, but let me ask again. Where does your mind focus when you're not doing anything? Like when you're, when you're driving home from work or driving to work and you go on autopilot, you know, you're not quite sure how you arrived there. And uh, you have this moment of quiet in which you don't necessarily have to be thinking about anything in particular. You might say, well, I'm pretty busy. I think I have to be thinking of things all day. Well, fair enough, but, but what do you think you have to be thinking of, you know? What is it in that moment that you're thinking of? And I think the answer is you're thinking about that which you've invested the most. That which you've invested the most of yourself the most of your resources, the most of your time, your energy, your money, your brain power. That's what you're thinking about in that moment, where you're investing. Like, like, what do you tend to care about the most? You tend to care about the things in which you've invested the most of yourself. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your house, cabin, stock portfolio, a place where you just feel like everything's kind of riding on it. Maybe it's your baseball team, your studies at university, the career that you hold. Why? Jesus tells us why in his Sermon on the Mount, and he gives us a nice reminder also as to why we should study the book of Revelation together. Quite a few commentators point this out, by the way. So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. Now I want you to pay attention to the order in which Jesus says this, okay? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So hang on a minute. What does that mean? Sometimes, even in recent literature on the issue, I think we get this, this verse the wrong way around. Sometimes we take it to mean that we should guard our hearts so that they're not inclined toward earthly treasures because our treasure will follow our hearts. 
And with all respect, I disagree with that interpretation, though I think it's certainly taught elsewhere in Scripture. You know, I, I say a lot from the pulpit that the heart is an unreliable guide, right? The, we can't just follow our hearts to whatever it wants because that's, that's, not, that's not good advice. That's not good advice. But Jesus doesn't say that here. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. He doesn't say your treasure follows your heart. Right? He doesn't say, guard your heart so that you will lay up treasures in heaven. Note the order because it's crucial to understanding what I mean about the misplaced focus related to end time study. He says, lay up treasure in heaven so that your heart will be there also. He's saying like, stop laying treasures up for nonsense, earthly things, however great they might sound to you. Moth and rust will destroy them. They're in the end going to be taken from you. And by the way, investing on the, in those things, do you know what's going to happen? Those things will be at the forefront of your mind. Those things will be on the tip of your tongue. Those things are going to be what you start to think about and care about and treasure. You're going to catechize yourself in caring about these things the more you invest your thoughts and your resources into them. So instead, invest your time, your attention, your money, your very life into the treasures of heaven, which can't be destroyed, and then do you know where your heart will be? Where your attention will be, where your focus will be, on Christ. Be with him. So one commentator on this verse and how it relates to our text says this. He says, so it is extremely important then for Christians to maintain a high valuation of our destiny. A high valuation of our ultimate home. A high valuation of the new, new heavens and new earth. For such valuation will draw our hearts in that direction. That's what we're looking to do in Revelation. That's what we're doing here in chapter 21. So our purpose, it's to raise at Gospel Life Church our collective valuation of our eternal destiny, destiny by setting our focus, our hearts, our attention. Not on earthly events through a biblical eschatology of speculation, but rather examining what the scripture has to tell us about what we can certainly know about our ultimate home, the new heavens and the new earth, where Christ will be for his glory and our joy in him. There's no better text in scripture than to do it right here. And as we do that, here's what we're going to see. Really three stages of, our, of John's narrative here, of his vision, that show us our future hope, that really should change what we value as Christians, setting our mind on what is to come. So three stages of this, of this vision that should change what we value as Christians. What, what John's going to do is he's going to show us a picture of these visions that he's given here at the beginning of 21. So we'll see just a general picture of what he's doing. Then he, he gives us more details about it, all right? He describes it for us, and then finally he gives us some of its meaning and he invites us into it. So we'll see a picture of new creation, description of new creation, and an invitation to new creation. I really think this entire chapter, the entire book of Revelation is very invitational, uh, which is very much in line with how John writes in his gospel account, in his letters, and here as well. So first let's start with our first stage of this, of this vision found in verses 1 through 8. Let's just look at the first two verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, so there's a lot of imagery here, but, but here that John shows us this initial snapshot 
a picture of new creation. So can, my argument is he's continuing to follow sequentially from the last two chapters in which Jesus returns, establishes his kingdom, binds Satan for a season, Satan is released. God shows us that in the midst of the most ideal situation possible, a just rule, a just government, our sinful hearts will still reject him regardless of that just rule, regardless of the passing of time. And what's needed is his decisive action. So this reminds us of the quote that we ended in last week, which said, God shows us beyond the tiniest scrap of a doubt that there's nothing finally that we can do to redeem ourselves. Even if things are organized for us, what's required finally is nothing other than the new heavens and the new earth. God taking decisive action at the consummation in a way that's irreversible or else we'll blow it again. And so what do we find now? Find God taking decisive action at the consummation in a way that's irreversible. Jesus himself now coming to make all things new. That's, that's the snapshot. That's the overview of what John's talking to us about in these first eight verses. But the purpose here in verses one and two, listen, it's not to say that John's seeing two different visions of two different things. Like, he's not seeing one vision in which there's like this new heaven and new earth, and then another where like the city comes and lands on that new heavens and new earth. No, that they mean the same thing. They're pointing to the same reality. Again, we want to carry over the genre of apocalyptic literature all the way through the book of Revelation, right? All the way through to the end. It's not intended to be read with a crude literalism where we picture that city coming and landing on the new heavens and the new earth, but rather it's intended to show us two pictures of the same reality. And we've seen this before, right? Um, John shows us a lion and a lamb, they're not two different entities, but two symbols of the same reality, Jesus Christ. We see both 144,000 and the great multitude. They're not two different groups, but two different symbols of the same group, the complete people of God. And here he sees three pictures. New heavens and new earth, a bride, and a city. And these are three symbols of the same reality, new creation. But again... The purpose of symbolism isn't to say it's not real, because I think this is where people kind of get lost when we talk about apocalyptic literature. They think, well, if this is just symbolic, then it doesn't mean anything. No, that's not true. Like, the new creation is real. This is a sure future hope. But these symbols are simply present here to show us something, to tell us something, to communicate to us something about the reality of what's to come in the new heavens and the new earth. So what do these symbols tell us about our future hope? Well, in this brief snapshot right at the beginning, first we see it's contrasted with the heavens and earth as we know it right now. These new heavens and new earth are contrasted with the first one. So John writes, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So, man, this is fundamentally different from the world in which we live now, from what will be, at that point, our former world in some sense. But the question is, how is it fundamentally different? Because on the one hand, it's pictured as entirely new. On the other hand, it's pictured as taking place on this earth where Jesus has been reigning, right? So it's entirely new exactly. Well, probably quite a bit. And this is where no amount of words and visions from John could possibly give us a, a, a scale grand enough to see how weighty the new heavens and the new earth will be. In some sense... You know, everything symbolic in this chapter appears to give way to a world 
especially when you, when you look at the description in the next section that we won't have a chance to unpack as detailed as I'd like, but, but when you look at the description, you see like, this is a world that's bigger and deeper and wider than the one that we live. It's the same one, but it's, it's somehow grander. It's back to what God intended for his people, but it's somehow grander. And that's how C.S. Lewis pictures Narnia in the last battle. Like, they're like, okay, so, I mean, it's Narnia, but it takes longer to traverse it. It's, it's bigger. It's deeper. There's something newer and better about it. This is, this is the imagery here. But it's primarily different in that the new heavens and the new earth, look, look at how it continues in verse 1 now. It says, the sea was no more. In the new heavens and the new earth, the seas no more. I think this is, this is why John puts this in the beginning snapshot of these symbols. Because this is the fundamental difference. Here it is. That the sea was no more. What does that mean? Again, here we see an example of precisely why we can't take Revelation, apocalyptic literature, is crudely literal. Because when we do, we actually lose the meaning. It's not actually saying that there won't be any bodies of water or ocean in the new heavens and new earth. It's going back, rather, to what we've seen throughout Revelation. Every time the sea is mentioned, what do we find? Well, do you remember? God is in his throne room. God's people are surrounding him, but there's this giant chasm, this giant sea of glass that separates God and people, that those who've been redeemed in the blood of the Lamb, they're able to traverse that, right? Not on their strength, but on Christ's strength, but otherwise we see this great chasm separating God and man, which now in the new heavens and the new earth, saying it's removed, it's gone. Or we see in the sea a constant symbol for what? Sin, evil, chaos, wickedness. I think that's the same idea, right? It's a chasm from God because in it there's, there's sin, evil, chaos, wickedness that Jesus fully and finally defeats upon his return. So um, remember, remember how Antichrist is described. He's described as the beast out of the sea. Right? This vigorous, aggressive, vile, wicked, evil opposition to God, it's no more. This is good news, right? Like th- this is fundamentally how new heavens and new earth are distinct from the world in which we live now. And we see more of that, starting in verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The chasm is no more, right? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. There's no more chasm of evil and wickedness separating God and and man. No longer any sea between him and us. Sin and death have been thrown into the lake of fire. Right? Verse 4, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We see what difference this makes, that there is no longer any sea. What is it precisely that's passed away? Death, mourning, crying, pain, gone. This is why we read in verse 5, starting in verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new, beginning with you. You can be made new, right? And, and that newness, there's a certainty to it. It's done. It's in the one, on the one hand, this echoes back Jesus' words on the cross, yelling out, it is finished, no more payment, a, a word that's going to be used later on in this text, no more payment needed, necessary in order for sin, for sacrifice of sin, because he's taken all of it on his shoulders. So it's done. Why? Because of who he is and what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Look at verse 7 again. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Like The picture here is of a kind of hope. This, this first introductory picture, this snapshot of what happens when Jesus takes this decisive action at the consummation. Like This gives us quite a bit of hope that I think sometimes can be difficult to understand. One of the reasons it's tough to understand is because we're pretty far removed from an ancient Near East reading of the text. In an ancient Near East reading of the text, uh, universally, what the father did for a living, the son does for a living, right? That still happens today, right? We still have sons who take up the trade of their fathers, but in much smaller percentages in the West, right? So in the first century, if your father was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If your father was a baker, you were a baker. If your father was a blacksmith, you're a blacksmith. You receive his heritage. You become like him. Right? You join him in his work. Today, you know, my father's an attorney. I'm a pastor. Right? That's kind of how it works now. So it's harder for us to see. What does this heritage mean? Well, this is the people of God becoming like God. Right? Joining him in his work in a perfect sense. Being as close to God's likeness as an image bearer can possibly be. And yet, let's be clear about this, because in this first picture, right, John's pretty clear about it. Yes, Jesus comes to make all things new, beginning with you, beginning with you, he comes to make all things new. Yes, you can be redeemed of sin now by grace, if you throw yourself upon his mercies at the cross of Christ. For, for those who put their faith and trust in Christ to save, there will be a new creation, right? And that's, there's an already not yet tension in this text. A lot of the things that he's describing here, being called sons of God, the Apostle Paul says that started now. You've been adopted into sonship, right? So there's an already sense of this, but there's a perfected sense coming for those who trust in him. But, verse 8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Immediately after the chapter in which he's already told us this would happen, John makes it clear that in this new creation, no more see means no more unrepentant people. Right? In other words, and this is important, those who do not desire to be in God's presence, those who choose instead to war against Christ as their own Lord and Savior rather than looking for Him to save, they will get what they want. The picture that we see, and we've seen it over and over again throughout Revelation, is not like God judging people who repent and say, oh, if I could just have eternity with you, if I could just have a second chance. That's not how... Judgment is described, rather it's described in terms of people being unrepentant to the very end because they do not want to be with Christ. They do not want Him. And so, God gives them what they want. And the reason for that is because if they remained, evil would remain. 
It wouldn't be the kind of decisive action at consummation that the biblical text describes for us in which now there's no more sea of chaos, evil, wickedness, and death. So that's kind of the introductory glimpse. John wants to give us a a general snapshot of this new creation in which he shows us the primary distinction between the former heavens and the former earth and the new heaven and new earth. And the primary distinction is Right? In the new heavens and the new earth, it is rid of chaos, wickedness, evil, death. All right? and, and so here we see, we move from this picture of new creation in which all of that has been defeated to now a, a deeper description of that new creation. John's going to employ further metaphor, more detailed symbolism to describe God's creation for his people. Starting in verses 9 to 10, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and he spoke to me saying come I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb and he carried me away in the spirit to a high great mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God so this new creation it's described in deeply intimate and social terms for us here with a few different metaphors right it's new heavens and new earth It's a bride. It's also a city. And it's interesting because in all this we have this like, what does John love to do in Revelation? He loves to show us contrasts, right? So new heavens and new earth opposed to first heaven and first earth, verse 1. The bride of the lamb as opposed to the prostitute of the beast. The holy Jerusalem as opposed to unholy Babylon. We see all of these contrasts. It's interesting, right? Like, The same exact angel here in this verse, if you remember. I talked about it when we preached on this text earlier, but the same one who introduced us to the prostitute riding the beast, the one who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, now that angel introduces John to the bride, wife of the lamb. And then he shows him a city. Let me show you the bride. He shows him a city. There's your bride. And the prostitute was also a city. It was Babylon. And that's important because when we think of cities, when we contrast this, when we think of cities, often what happens is we think of people who are by nature sinful gathering together in this mass population density. And what results can often be crime, chaos, rioting, violence, murder, theft. And it can be easy for Christians, I think, to have this view of cities in this world where we say, look at all the sinful nature per square foot, instead of saying, look at all the image of God per square foot that we have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel into, so that in the end they can be a part of God's redeemed work, which just so happens to be a city full of people. Right Again, the new creation isn't described in terms of an escape from people. It's not God saying, well, that really didn't work out to put a bunch of people together in the same place. So in the new creation, we'll spread everybody out, give them a nice big plot of land so they've got, you know, uh, space to not collide with others. And then it'll be nice and peaceful and pleasant. You know, it descends in terms of a city. Not an escape from social reality. Maybe introverts can get frightened of this. Because relationships are messy, people can be draining, you know. But here in the new creation, it's described in these deeply social terms involving primarily our relationship to Christ as his bride, and then as a result of that, our relationship to one another, in which we'll love one another as the people of God in community forever. In fact, where do you see isolation talk in Scripture following death? The Bible seems to describe hell 
as the antisocial reality in which we're cast into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I say all this as an introvert, just to be clear. This isn't an extrovert uh, lecturing introverts. I'm, I'm with you in this, but listen, it's going to be different, right? The Bible describes hell in this is this outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. C.S. Lewis's great divorce, it's all a metaphor, but it's super interesting because he pictures hell as being where these unregenerate people, maybe they gather together at first, but then they spread out further and further and further. The opposite of what we find in Revelation 21. Why? They spread out further and further because they hate God and they hate one another more and more. So everybody keeps moving further out because they don't want to be next to anybody. And guess what? Nobody wants to be next to them. Until they're just all alone, in seclusion, collapsing in on themselves. The picture of what, it's look, what it looks like to be your own Lord and Savior for all eternity. It's frightening, right? Truly frightening. Uh, not so in the New Jerusalem. And so God doesn't paint the new creation in terms of a secluded or isolated place where you can finally be alone. I'm not saying there, there's not going to be any alone time in the new heaven and the new earth. I don't know how that's going to work. But, but the imagery here is rather a city in which... We will collectively be his people. How's the city described? Reread verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. How will this city work? Well, this holy city coming down out of heaven for the second time in this text is is described as a new Jerusalem. Why new Jerusalem? What's new about that? Well, We'll see more about this in this description related to the temple, but the idea here is that while the Old Testament law could show you your sin, it could act as a mirror through which you were confronted by your sin, it could show you your need of a Savior, couldn't actually save you from your sin. And if the law could save you because of your ability to follow it, you would need a Savior. So the Old Testament law shows you your need for a Savior. In the New Jerusalem, however, it's no longer a city of law because it's not needed. It's a city ruled entirely by grace in which there's no law because we're made perfect by Christ. Christ reigning over it by way of his mercies at the cross. Pictured as a lamb, the perfect lamb, the ultimate lamb whose blood was shed on our behalf once for all. Rather than the repetition of the sacrificial system that simply pointed to Christ. Now we're given him perfectly and in his entirety. Christ has fully reconciled his people. And so as a result, look at how his people are described. Verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, the city shines with the glory of God. In fact, most of the description moving forward about the walls and the foundation, I think this is what's happening. We're not going to get a chance to read this whole section, but it's descriptively unpacking the walls, the foundation, the city. Why? What's purpose is to demonstrate the brilliance of God's glory, the beauty of his new creation, specifically, though, his people. Because remember, come let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who is that? That's his people. And then he carries John away and he shows him a city. There's the bride. And just like one might describe the adornments of a bride on her wedding day, the city is adorned with jewels made beautiful by the one who comes to do his restoration work. And this is interesting because, you know, Old Temple first and first and Old Testament first and temple first and second temple Judaism on the one hand provided a sacrificial system for God's people in order to deal with their sins in a temporary kind of way, in order to establish a means of God's dwelling 
in some sense with his people, but it couldn't actually deal in a final sense with their sin. As we said earlier, the law exposed, what did it expose? Our ugliness. It held up a mirror so that we could see the ugliness of our sin, showing us our fallen nature. But when the people of God are described here at the end of Revelation, rather than showing us a mirror of sin, we see a picture of God's glory shining through us. It reminds me of um, that Sally Lloyd-Jones quote. I'm paraphrasing. Jesus didn't love his people because they were beautiful, but rather his people became beautiful because Jesus had loved them. Right? Like we'll, we'll see that clearly spelled out in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm excited about that in a few weeks. But it shouldn't surprise us then that there's no temple in verse 22. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We've addressed that in an apocalyptic way of saying there's no longer the need for a sacrificial system. It is finished. Payment has been given. Jesus stands as the once-for-all sacrifice of sin. There's also no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Again, I don't take this to mean that literally speaking, in the new heavens and new earth, there won't be a sun or a moon. I take it to be saying that God's glory is rightly placed in the new creation as the center of everything, and he gives true illumination to the world. Right. But then when the nations are mentioned, when the worlds are mentioned, in this description, something curious and perhaps controversial for a first century audience, is stated in verse 25. It says, and this is really interesting, like this is a part, it's actually come up in a few different Q&As where people uh, are kind of looking forward to this last chapter. But look at verse 25. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. So that's, this is a way of saying the gates will never be shut. So it'll never be shut by day, and by the way, it won't be night. So it's, they're always going to be open, all right? But the majority of this chapter has been dedicated to describing what? Like, where has, where has John placed the, the majority of his description? The walls of the city, the foundation of the city, how huge they are, how mighty they look? And I do think, I do think part of that imagery is meant to symbolize how safe God's people are kept in the new creation for all eternity through this description of these walls that are impenetrable. But then in true apocalyptic fashion, you've got this like giant, um, you know, if you, if, you, if you take the measurement and kind of plop it down to the United States, these walls extend from like Chicago to Los Angeles. Like this is, it's intended to be like this enormous wall, right? So you see these huge walls, and in true apocalyptic fashion, the gates are open, and they're not going to ever be shut. And so we might ask, like, what use is it, then, to have these mighty, impenetrable walls if you, if you never shut your gates? And the answer is, well, God's enemies have been fully and finally destroyed, as we've already read. But second, and I think in this context, more striking and more central, it's that all nations are now a part of this new creation, right? All nations are a part of it. See, when, when God's people rebuilt the walls, it was often to like, it was often out of fear of the surrounding nations. It was often to keep surrounding nations out. It was to keep God's enemies out. Uh, but, but the Old Testament prophets actually longed for the day when God's kingdom would finally come and the gates of the city would always remain open for the nations. The restoration of Edom, the restoration of those who had rejected Christ 
Why? Because Israel was never intended to be some ethnic identity in a specific location that was set apart from themselves as a single nation belonging to God, but rather it was intended to be a multi-nation people for God who proclaimed God to the nations around them that they might enter in, that they might have life with Him, that they might be His people also, a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. This is God's redeeming work. And in case you doubt me that that's the intended meaning, look at the context. Verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there, so it's shut, so they're open all the time. Never shut the gates. Why? Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does anything that's detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the walls are intended to symbolize, I think, a protection For God's people in which nothing wicked or evil will ever enter in again, and yet the gates can stand open, even in the midst of that, because, right, like, the metaphor is not intended to walk on all fours. The gates can stand open because all of God's enemies are defeated. The gates can stand open as a symbol for the reality that even Edom, the descendants of Esau, those who were far off, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation can be brought into his kingdom by faith in Christ. Right? And we do that work now, evangelism and mission, right? Proclaiming the grace of Christ to the world around us. And, and we see that fulfilled here. So there's more to be said, certainly, but striking good news so far. When we look at this picture of new creation, this description of new creation, and now finally, we see this invitation into new creation. We see its meaning. We see its substance. What do I mean? Well, look at the first five verses of the last chapter. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Here we see this imagery that points us forward, but also brings us backward. And that's very intentional on the part of John, right? It points us forward by, in a sense, bringing us backward. In other words, what do we see? Well, we see the river of the water of life. Here's John. Here's John, the one who recorded Jesus saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now here he's being shown the river of the water of life, flowing from the throne of God and from the land, through the middle of the streets of the city, into the people of God. And as a part of this imagery... We find the tree of life. What's that saying? Well, okay, so right before we jumped into Revelation, we preached through the book of Genesis. And we did that intentionally because, in a sense, toward the end of the book of Revelation, you find a return to the beginning of Genesis. If you remember how Genesis begins, God's people are in the garden with God. They have fellowship with God. They walk with God. All things are good. The tree of life stands in the garden. They are God's people. So to borrow from Graham Goldsworthy, they're God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place 
the Garden of Eden, you know, in the world that he's created for them, under God's rule, in, in the midst of his presence, he walks with them. He's with them, right? There's no sin in the world at this point in time. The intention is that they live forever. The tree of life is there. They're intended to live forever, right? And here we see a return back to that. We see the tree of life yet again bringing us back to what God wanted to do all along, returning God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to his place, the new heavens and the new earth, a new Eden, under his right rule, God's presence with his people. So behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with him as their God. This is what was happening functionally at the beginning of Genesis. Behold, the dwelling place of God was with man, right? And when we understand this, we come to see the uniqueness of the hope of the Christian worldview over against all other worldviews, right? Like, so what did we have? We had a good world without sin in the presence of God in which his desire was for us to live forever under his right rule. But because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because we decided that we could de-God God and put ourselves on the throne, other things on the throne, because of our desire to make ourselves God and other things God that were never meant to bear that weight, we lost it. The world as we knew it was lost. Paradise lost. Creation went from being under God's good rule, unmarred by sin, to, the groan, to groaning in its fallenness. This happened right away. Like, within three chapters of Scripture, this happens. And yet in the midst of our fallenness, despite the fact that we ran from God in our wickedness, seeing Him as an enemy, like, what's, what's Adam and Eve's immediate impulse in Genesis 3? It's to run and hide. And when you see Israel, when you see God's people, when you see the reaction of humanity, past that, what, what, what do we continue to do? We run and hide. And despite the fact that we ran from God in our wickedness, God pursued us. It's the only way that we would ever become his is if he pursued his people. The only way we could ever be with God is if he moved toward us. You know, and he entered into human history. In an ultimate way, he moved toward us by entering into human history to do for us what we failed to do in the garden. What did we fail to do in the garden? We failed to live perfectly before the Father. Right? We, we failed to live perfectly obedient to him. We failed to, to protect our bride by bringing her before the Father and saying, you know, I've not sinned. Pay, pay her penalty upon me. Right? This is what Jesus did. He lives perfectly before the Father, and yet he protects his bride by bringing her before the Father, saying, I have not sinned. Place her penalty of sin upon me instead of her. Jesus does this for his people, the Church of Christ, so that those who hope in Christ might now have life. That's only a future glimpse of what is in the life to come. And what's the life to come? What's the life to come? It's the life we always wanted, but lost. Right? That's what we see at the end of Revelation. We see the life we always wanted, but lost. You know, it's like in a game show on television. If you lose the big prize, what do you receive? A consolation prize. Something to make you kind of feel better for driving all the way out there to the studio. And here, take, take this nice coffee maker home with you. You feel better for what you lost, but you can't ever have, you know? And we attempt that kind of consolation prize stuff in real life, too. Like, have you ever lost something that's of inestimable value, value to you, that you really wanted, something that 
you would say was precious to you in a unique kind of way, but then you, for some reason, you lose it. Maybe it's destroyed somehow in a fire or in a flood. Or maybe you just lose it, and with the passing of time, you realize that there's no hope in getting it back, so what do you do? Well, maybe somebody... Maybe somebody tries to console you by going out and buying you another one. Or maybe you do the same thing for yourself. But it's not the same. It's not the same one. It doesn't have the same memories attached. It's a consolation for what you had, but what was lost and you'll never get back. The bank forecloses on your childhood home that you were hoping to live in for the rest of your life because of the memories that you had. Growing up there, the desire to raise your own family there, then they, you know, they demolish it. Put in a parking lot. Right? I mean, you get, there's... All kinds of examples like this. You, you try to find another house with the same kind of layout as a consolation, but it's not the same one. We lose people in our lives. You can't just replace people, right? All kinds of examples of this, obviously. And, th- and yet this tends to be how other worldviews, both secular and religious, operate in terms of hope. They say, well, you only have this life, right? We, we want to have life eternal. This is what I was, meant last week when I said, this is why we have so many billionaires who are investing so much money in extending life and potentially trying to find a way to get out of death. People are scared to death of death. And yet the idea is, you only have this life, and when you lose it, it's gone. You'll never get it back. It's gone. So console yourself by making yourself as happy as you can in the moments where you're able because you're not getting it back. Or the religious systems in both Eastern and Western world religions have this idea that flesh is evil, flesh is corrupt, the physical world and one day will be destroyed. But you're, you know, this physical world that we long for to be perfect will one day be destroyed. But you can have this com- consolation of an escape out of this world and into some kind of heaven or nirvana, right? Uh, but it's just a consolation. You, what you wanted was this world perfect and it's gone, it's lost forever. But on Christianity in the end, and only on Christianity, are you not given a consolation prize? As Tim Keller, Don Carson, others have argued... But you actually get back what you wanted but lost. You get it back. You actually receive the thing back, only it's made new. It's renovated. It's better than you ever imagined it. This is restoration and new creation. This is an invitation from John to his readers for them to see the hope that's held out in the Christian worldview. You actually receive the thing back, but it's made new. We get back what we wanted so badly but lost, only it's better and it's eternal Because the tree of life is here in Revelation 22, but what's not here this time? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that brought about the curse because of our disobedience. Why? How's that possible? Well, Tom Schreiner writes this. He says, after Adam and Eve sinned, the ground was cursed. They were expelled from the garden and banned from the tree of life. Here in Revelation 22, the tree of life is given to the saints. And now John affirms, there is nothing cursed in, in the heavenly city for all its members have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. This is possible. Why? Because everyone in this new creation has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. His work made it possible, not our work. It's not because, you know, somehow we were made perfect. I think chapter 20 shows us that in a unique kind of way. And so when we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the reality that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb now, Yes. We proclaim the gospel of grace right now to one another. Yes. We can be saved through his blood now. We can be made new now. Yes. But we, in doing this together, also proclaim a future reality. That in the new heavens and new earth, 
We have back what was lost in a full, complete, final way, only made better and eternal because of this cross. In other words, it's only through the work of Christ on the cross that all members of the new heaven and new earth could be redeemed by his blood, therefore made perfect by his power forever. Let's proclaim that gospel to one another now. Fill, our, fill one, another, one another's hearts with hope as we come to the table. And so if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, you're a believer in this gospel of grace, this, this meal is for you, these elements are for you to be reminded of the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to one another. Here at Gospel Life Churches, we gather. If you're not a believer, we do invite you to participate. This is a church for skeptics. We want you to be asking questions about this hope that we have in Christ. So participate by observing. Come to the Q&A afterwards and ask good questions, but I invite you now to come and take the elements with you back to your seats.